Hello and welcome back to the Console Kingdom. It is so good to be back with you guys. I have been feeling better. I am ready to rock and roll tonight and we have got yourselves an episode that is just going to be a lot of fun. I am Jared and Dan, how are you tonight? I'm good. I'm good. How you doing, Jared? I'm glad you're glad you're feeling better. Glad you're back uh, in good shape here and ready to rock and roll. I'm feeling good, man. I'm really, really excited about this episode. Um, but first, before we get into that, you had talked to me about doing a new segment of uh, dropping some news uh, on our listeners. And I like that. I like that a lot. Um, so you uh, you shared with me a couple of uh, items that we wanted to discuss with uh, our listeners tonight. So before we get into our main topic, which is Castlevania, which is going to be a lot of fun, um, I'd like to get into a little bit of news. So, Dan, what do you got for me today? Yeah, so we got some cool news in the last couple of days. I'm sure everyone's heard a little bit about this one, but I thought it'd be fun to talk about The Witcher is getting remade in uh, Unreal Engine 5, the original The Witcher, which was only only released on PC. And um, it's very different. <laughs> very, very different from Witcher 2 and 3. So it's it's interesting to see that get remade. Now, did you ever play that one, Jared? I did not play the first one. A lot of people didn't because it was only released on PC. I played it. I played it a couple of times. I really, really loved it. And uh, what was interesting about it was that when it was originally released, they censored it because there's a lot of nudity in there and they censored it. Um, and then like shortly, like I think a year or two after the release, they re-released it as the enhanced edition and the enhanced edition had some, you know, graphical updates, bug fixes, etc., And all the censorship was removed. So um, I'm very interested in how they're going to handle that. Now, I know it hasn't been a long, long time since the original game came out, and I don't know how much our um, sort of uh, public um, perception of these sorts of things has changed in that time, but I don't know. I feel like it might raise a few eyebrows when there's a big mainstream release of this game that has um, some pretty objectionable content. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you what the thing is, Jared. In the game... Uh, Geralt is pretty much free to romance any lady of his choosing and all the ladies of his choosing. And when you do so, you collect a trading card. And the trading card has a very racy image of the lady on the trading card. Okay. And you can collect you can collect them all like Pokemon cards. Um, you gotta catch them and all. And I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, gotta catch them all. Syphilis, herpes. Um, Just exactly what I was catch thinking. Them all. That's what I was thinking. So, so, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think it might have flown under the radar back then because the game was first released in Europe, and then the U.S. version didn't remove the censorship till later, and it was only on PC. And I'm wondering if now having this um, re-released on all the major platforms with a new engine, and you know, these a few years later, I wonder if that's going to raise a few um. eyebrows because um, it is kind of. I mean, it's it, 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 it look that that's probably pretty much textbook objectification of what right, I think at that right. point. Right, and let's just say this: I mean, everybody okay. needs to like, see that in four K. Yeah, yeah. People might be like a little upset about that, and they might not be totally wrong to be a little upset about it. It's it's pretty misogynistic when I think about it. <laughs> but but say it. I mean, honestly, yeah. having the Unreal Five. 
Um, that's going to be a pretty looking game, honestly. I love the Unreal 5 yes. engine. Yes, and I always thought it was... And I, I always thought it was a really good looking game, but uh, that's a big upgrade. I'm trying to think when it was released. I think it was released in the Unreal 3 engine, so it's going to be a pretty big upgrade. Uh, you know, 4K, obviously, the textures are going to be very high resolution. And um, as long as they don't botch this like they did with, with uh, what was it, Cyberpunk? As long as they don't botch this release that like they did with Cyberpunk, yeah. it should be pretty good. Uh, the game's a lot of fun. The game's a lot of fun, I think. A lot of people didn't like it because the control scheme is weird. So I kind of wonder if they're going to change it, right? Because it was made for mouse and keyboard. And the way that you attack in the game is like there's a circle on the screen. And you're supposed to click the button like when this when this little sword icon lines up in the right part of the circle. Okay. So it's almost like a, like a quick time event every time you fight. And people didn't like it. I liked it. I thought it was cool. But a lot of people didn't like it. So I guess we'll find out how people yeah. feel about it. Tip a coin to your Witcher. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that's this guy. Uh, yes, that's that's an exciting one. You may think there's a guy that uh, I follow on Instagram, Jacques Z Whipper. He does this mm-hmm. thing at like Renaissance fairs where he does like yep. tricks with whips. And yep, one of his familiar. things is he does he he sings songs and he like whips the beat. Yes, he does. And he 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 did a crazy mustache. And yes, yeah, yep, I follow him too. And he did one, he's doing the whips, and he says, Um, toss a coin to your witcher. No, your whipper, toss a coin to your whipper, or maybe a 20. Let's make it a 20. So that's kind of fun, yeah, absolutely. So, moving on, uh, you had another thing that you another uh, article that you wanted to discuss. Yeah, speaking of uh, objectification of women, so Bayonetta, uh, Bayonetta 3 is in development, as we all know. Uh, I played like 10 minutes of the first Bayonetta, and, and I just, I'm sorry, it, people are going to not like me for this, but it was so stupid, and I stopped playing it because it was so, so dumb. It's a dumb game. I'm sure it's very fun, but it, it was just stupid. I stopped playing it. It's your generic it. But, um, slash. I mean, it's like Devil May Cry, but with women, with a woman. And it's just so, it's so over the top. And I mean, the voice acting, we're going to talk about the voice acting. We'll talk about the voice acting was like just, just cringe inducing. And all the dialogue was terrible. And it was all like corny double entendres. And I'm going to get people going to be mad at me for saying all this because I'm sure a lot of people really do love Bayonetta, uh, which they must because, you know, they're doing a third one now. Um, but Helena Taylor, the the voice actress who played Bayonetta in the first two games, uh, really made a lot of waves on social media because she was um, complaining that they offered her only $4,000, apparently, to do the voice acting. And then um, she was calling upon fans to boycott. And I think we all remember this. And I think that a lot of us, not everybody, there was definitely a lot of debate, you know, within the gaming community, but a lot of us were kind of on her side, right? Because it's obviously a very popular franchise. You know, her her work is obviously valuable right. to the franchise. She's the voice of the main character. So, yeah, she should be paid, you know, she should be paid good money to do that job, right? And I, I, it, got me, it got me super curious. Like, do you know, do you have any idea, Jared, like... What goes into voice acting for a game, like how much time it requires or, or or how much work it actually really is or anything like that? No, I never really researched it, but I would assume doing these podcasts, you know, um, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. 
um, and things like that, trying to get audio right, trying to get all this kind of stuff right. And, and even then, with games, you have professionals that have huge soundboards and things, and you still have to record these moments and these lines from the game in such a way that, you know, it's going to take, it's not going to, you're not going to first take it. You're going to have to do multiple takes to try and get the right emotion behind the words. I would imagine that, you know, you're talking 60 plus hours a week, if not more than that, you know, trying to get this, uh, get this done. I think that's possible. I don't really know for sure. I read one comment that somebody said, and this this is completely coming out of the blue. This could be, someone could have pulled this out of their butt. I have no idea. They said that for uh, Bayonetta 2, that the total time it took to record all of Bayonetta's lines was 16 hours. Okay? okay. So 16 hours, 16 hours work for $4,000, to me, doesn't really sound like too bad of a deal. Like, that's like, Two thousand bucks a day, like I, I like that sounds like an okay deal to me, but then you factor in, you know, well, what is her time worth? How iconic is the voice of Bayonetta? Like I don't know, cause I'm not a fan, but like, does she have something super distinctive about her voice that only Helena Taylor can do? Like, like if you want Harley Quinn, like you're calling Tara Strong, cause Tara Strong Absolutely. is Harley Quinn, right? And there's no getting around that. If Tara, if, if, Tara, if Tara Strong wants, you know, twice as much money as you're offering for her to voice Harley Quinn again, you're yeah. probably going to spend the money. Well, I but, mean, likewise. You know, is that, is that an equivalent thing? I likewise thing? with Mark Hamill's you know, Joker. Like, I mean, there is no other Joker. Right. Right. And these are also actors who have a much longer resume and, and I think are a little more well-known. And I could be a little bit wrong about that. Maybe Helena Taylor's done a lot more than I realize, but I think she was kind of coming from a place of um, thinking maybe that her time was more valuable than it is. And um, what came out shortly later was that uh, she she lied, uh, or at least she she misrepresented herself somehow, because it came out later that she was originally offered ten thousand dollars, and then she contacted the the head of the development studio. And was offered another five thousand on top of it, which would mean that she was offered fifteen thousand dollars to do about sixteen hours of work, which is like a thousand bucks an hour, and is well above the standard of what they tend to pay voice actors. So when that came out, it was kind of like she 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 got what she wanted, or at least she got what reasonably in her position she could have expected to get if she held out, but she was still holding out for more than that. So, I mean, in my opinion, from what I gather, based on everything I've heard so far about this, it sounds like she got greedy. Yeah, and that's a bad look. That's yeah, a like, I think, really bad look. Yeah, I think she thought she could get more than she could, and I think she probably thought they were holding out on her a little bit. And um, I think it sort of blew up when she didn't take that offer, and they said, okay, we'll go another way. I don't think she was expecting that. I think she was expecting them to say, no, 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 whatever you want, we'll give it to you because we need you to do this. Um, and I don't think she had the expectation that they were even going to consider going another way. I think that was just a case of getting a little too big for your britches. And now she's going to have to live with those consequences of missing out on the gig, missing out on the pay, obviously. And um, the damage to the reputation. Uh, do you, are, 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 are a lot of these studios now going to want to work with somebody? who held out for more money and then when they were offered more money still turned it down and then told fans to boycott the franchise. Right. 
But I, I think mean, it does. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, I mean, and you got to look at it like you're saying. The thing is, is, you know, if I'm a studio exec and I'm looking at, you know, all these cancellations and this cancel culture that we have and everything else, you know, and everything. If I have a voice actress that's voicing an iconic character such as Bayonetta uh, as part of the franchise, you know, this is why Nintendo doesn't have Samus talk or have Link talk. But, you know, having someone come out and say, well, I'm not making as much money as I should be. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, it's like, no, no, no. We offered you this much money, and, you know, it's it's a matter of integrity. And honestly, I wouldn't want to hire that person back. And it sounds like she was offered more money. Now, I could be wrong about this, but it sounds like she was offered more money than any voice actor doing a video game could reasonably expect to be offered. Like, it was a good offer. Of course. But I think what really was the main thing was she wanted residuals, and that's not done. Like, they don't do that. Um, and, and, and again, this is, you know, I don't know much about this aspect of video game industry, but I, I presume, you know, like if you have a Hollywood actor, like a screen actor, like like if they sell a, if they sell an Iron Man action figure, like Robert Downey Jr. makes money off of that because that's his likeness, right? Because he's the character, um, providing it's you know got his face, I guess. If there's just the mask, he probably doesn't. But you know, he's the face of that character. So I think that maybe, and I'm just spitballing here. I could be wrong. Maybe Helena Taylor was trying to get more of that sort of a deal, where any merchandise with the character on it or anything in which the character appears, or even maybe just any situation, any media where the character is voiced, maybe she was hoping to get a cut of, whether it's something animated or whether it's like an ad or something like that. I don't know for sure, but she wanted residuals, and that tells me that she wanted you know, forthcoming payments for things that were related to the game, but not just for the work she did in the game. Or maybe she just wanted a, per a percentage of the game sales. I'm not really sure, but I think that's what really made her walk away from it. Was that they're like, no, we don't, we don't do that. And she's like, okay, then, then, then no. And I think she was expecting them to cave, and they didn't. I, th that's pretty much what I figure happened. Yeah. All in all, I'd say that's pretty messed up. So, a little while ago, though, Jared, we did an episode about mental health and video games and how those two things, you know, uh, interact with each other. And for those listening, if you haven't heard that episode, please do check that one out because I think that might be our best like most thought-provoking, smartest, most interesting episode because we talk about some very, very cool stuff there, how video games affect all different sorts of disorders and mental health in general, how your mental health might influence your video gaming habits. It's a very provocative, deep uh, episode. So on that topic, I just read today, there was recently a study published where some researchers found that playing video games may be associated with better cognitive performance in children, which is a really, really cool thing to find out. And Jared, you know what really blew my mind about this is, I'm going to ask you a question, actually. How much time do you think the subjects of the study spent playing video games in order for it to show that they had better cognitive function? Ooh, How many hours that's per a week? That's question. Um, a day, a day, you're talking a day, not a week, right? Hours per week. 
Oh, hours per week. Okay. So if you're doing, so I'm going to say 14 hours a week. If you're doing two hours, seven days a week. Okay. That's close. It was actually 21 hours a week. Okay. Okay. So those children, those children who played video games for more than 21 hours per week showed an increase in their cognitive performance in working memory, which is basically the opposite of what I would expect, and also impulse okay. control. What's ironic about this, yeah, what's ironic about this is how we talked about how excessive video game playing had a negative impact on people with ADHD, where problems that we tend to have are impulse control and working memory, and we also tend to play too much video games so i thought that was that blew my mind that they found that the the opposite actually was true where it wasn't making the working memory worse it wasn't making the uh, impulse control worse it was actually making them better and the way they tested this they had mris and brain scans i read the i read the whole study and i, I mean it's all in like very heavy dense medical terminology so a lot of it kind of flew over my head uh, so i just was reading like a summary of it and this is from uh, NIH.gov. Apparently, this started with a, a larger uh, ongoing study called the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study, ABCD, which I think they just called it that because it's ABCD. And um, they took a very large sample. It was, I think, like 600. I have to look at it again real quick. Uh, 2,000 okay. 2, participants. And they had a group that was, I think it kind of came down to like 800. I, I, I could be fudging the numbers a little bit here. About 800 kids who played video games and about 600 who didn't. And they compared them side by side. And that, you know, with that caveat of who played video games for 21 hours or more per week against those who didn't play video games at all. And they found the group that played video games 21 hours or more a week had better working memory and better impulse control and we're actually able to like measure that and confirm it with a with, with an mri brain scan which is absolutely uh, fascinating that is so cool to think that you know just playing a game like can do that for you yeah good excuse for me to be allowed to play video games more <laughs> right right for sure speaking of playing more video games castlevania so getting <laughs> Yeah, so I was going to say, getting into our topic today, this is what I'm really excited about. You know, Halloween is just around the corner, and, um, you know, we, we talk about Castlevania and how it just had such an impact, uh, even from this game, you know, um, based so loosely on Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, Castlevania was a released game back in the East. I believe it was 1986 when it came out. Uh, it followed the character of Simon Belmont, and it is your quest to go and defeat Dracula. And along the way, you meet with classic horror characters such as Frankenstein's monster, and you have Death himself that you have to fight. You have Medusa. So many different horror icons. And it, it, it set the stage for a series that has become beloved for all time. One of my favorite video game franchises ever. I love Castlevania. 
I have been playing these, as I'm, as I'm sure you have, uh, ever since the first one came out on the NES back in the 80s. Absolutely. I would rent it from the video store, never get past level two, and then get frustrated because <laughs> right. it was such a hard game. It was. Um, you know, today I... Today I can I can probably get up to I think like level five or six usually before I before I've had enough but uh, I have finished it <laughs> in my adult life and uh, not only is it an incredible game you know the the very first game not only is that a game that still holds up today that I can still pick that up and play and enjoy but it's inspired and influenced so many other games like Ninja Gaiden was like very influenced by Castlevania the entire platforming genre it left a mark on the genre that is unlike anything else i think of the 8-bit and 16-bit era it it was a template it was a template for other games to use and i think there are countless imitations there are so many games that are like somewhat similar whether it's in gameplay style or visual style or both and they're they're all kind of biting absolutely. off the big daddy here absolutely and you know it you think about it and you think about games like ghosts and goblins Fester's Quest, things like that, that, you know, different franchises all together, but still have that horror vibe, that Castlevania feel to it with the with the uh, platforming and, and that kind of stuff. It's, it's one of those things that's just, man, I tell you, lasting impact. Mm. You know, we talked a lot about um, cinematic elements in games before, and that's kind of one of the founding cornerstones of the Castlevania franchise, was um, Akamatsu, who created the, the first game, he wanted to make a game that was cinematic. So you know how, like, in the beginning it has that cutscene, and um, there's the text, and there's some images in the background, and it's got these, yes. uh, they look like film negatives, yep. kind of running down the sides of the screen. They wanted to make it look and feel like a film reel. So it kind of makes sense that they went with, you know, one of the most classic sort of film icons that you could think of when in terms of horror, which, of course, is Dracula. And thank goodness, you know, that Dracula is in the public domain and anyone can just use Absolutely. it. Otherwise, that could have been Absolutely. legally an issue. And then, you know, I mean, and much of an impact as Castlevania 1 had, they followed it up with Simon's Quest. And let me tell you... Some people hated this game, and and you know, I, I personally, it's one of my favorites in the series, and I'll tell you why. It's not just the music; it's the exploration factor of it, the RPG aspect of leveling up by via fighting monsters and getting hearts, and hearts are worth you know are your income or your your money in the game. Right. Yeah, um, they're currency and they're also experience points. Yep. Yep. And a lot of people were like, oh, well, I hated that game because it didn't have a map. And it's like, but that's that was the era. Yeah, I mean, there are some wrong ha ROM hacks that have maps, that, and that's a little bit helpful. Uh, the way that the game is laid out, it's kind of laid out very similar to, remember Friday the 13th, where it was kind of hard to figure out where you were going? Yes. Because the map was a circle, but you had to go up and down. It was really, it was confusing. Right. And it was built It was built that way, you know, this game was built that way also. And I don't know if that was more of, a, more of an artistic choice to make it kind of confounding and make the player feel like they were on this big quest where they were going to be confused and people were going to try to mislead them and it was going to be hard to get around and they had to use their cunning or if it was more of like a, this is just an 8-bit cartridge and we only have so much memory we can jam stuff into 
So if we're going to make a big world, we're going to have to take some shortcuts and kind of lay stuff on top of each other in a weird way. Uh, I'm not really sure, you know, what the what that was all about. But did you know, Jared, the what the what the original Japanese uh, name of this franchise is? Yes, um, but I don't know if I can pronounce it. It's like Aki Suka, uh, and I it, it's it's in my mind because one of the <laughs> things that I love about Castlevania is the music. Okay, and I have always loved the eight bit music from Castlevania, and I honestly thought. That Castlevania three, the um, Japanese version on the Famicom had a better sounding soundtrack than it did on the NES. Yes, so there's a really cool story behind that. Uh, so the name of the franchise was Akumajo Dracula, or yep, Dracula's uh, Dracula's Haunted Castle, or Dracula's Devil Castle, or Dracula's Satanic Castle, whatever you want to call it. And they changed the name in the West because it was kind of during the time of like the satanic panic and there were news stories about, you know, crazy stuff going on that most of which wasn't really even true. But people were very scared of the idea of anything, you know, devil or satanic. So they changed it. But uh, and then three was uh, Akumajo Densetsu, which is, you know, uh, I think Densetsu is like adventure. So it was like the Demon Castle adventure. And then uh, number two was actually called. Dracula 2. It was just called Dracula 2, Simon's Quest. But, um, or, you know, Simon Nobo can, I think, Simon's Quest. But anyway, uh, with 3, it was interesting because what they did was they actually jammed into the cartridge like an extra sound chip to give it an additional sound channel. So the if you listen to them side by side, uh, the Japanese version of Castlevania 3 has an additional, uh, like, bass track, yeah. basically. Um, it does. It sounds really cool. It sounds a lot fuller. And that, and um, another important thing to remember too is that the first two games were originally released not on the cartridge system; they were released on the disc system. They were released on the Famicom disc system, and the Famicom disc system had an additional audio channel. So I think the idea was probably to emulate that. Um, although in the original game they didn't really utilize it, but in the second game you can hear it. You can hear the additional audio channel in the second game. And then I think in the third game, they had to switch to cartridges because the Famicom disk system by then had been discontinued. So they no longer had that additional sound channel in the hardware itself anymore. They actually jammed one into the cartridge. It's pretty, pretty ingenuous. And it has, that's never been, you know, uh, duplicated since. No other game ever had a sound chip inside the cartridge. Yeah. And actually, uh, one thing I wanted to mention about the third game, too, is that um, they changed the gameplay style to make it more of a choose your own type style where you had you had different mm -hmm. levels that you could go to and encounter different friends along the way from Grant to Sifa to Alucard and yeah branching paths and 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 the different uh, and the different um characters that could join you in the adventure that was such a big deal to me when i played it the first time because i'm like whoa this is new you know, yeah, they you know they definitely innovated with each title in the in, a, in the franchise. And when you look at the difference between one and two, it's incredibly different. Uh, two was such a different experience, and then three kind of brought us back to the original platforming that we all loved so much from the beginning, and linear stage progression with that twist that we had additional paths could go down, and you could choose 
which partners you eventually wind up with. I don't think it's possible. Is it possible to get all three in a single playthrough? I don't think it is, right? And you can only have one at a time. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'd have to go back and play and another it thing about the Another thing about the Japanese version of that one is that uh, Grant actually had throwing knives by default instead of the little useless knife that he has in the U.S. version. But at the time, one of the things that they did a lot with localizations was they would make the U.S. version harder because game rentals were illegal in Japan at the time. So if you wanted the game, you had to buy it. Here in the U.S., we could just rent the game, finish it in a weekend, and then never play it again. So they had to make the games harder so you couldn't just rent them and finish them in a weekend. Right. That makes sense. A lot of games are much harder here than they are. Like if you go if you go and you play some of the Japanese versions, a lot of the old games like Contra and stuff like that, way easier if you play the Japanese version. Like laughably easier. Because they didn't rent games, so they couldn't just finish it leaking it back. Absolutely. And then moving on to the Super Nintendo, man, let me tell you. Best Castlevania two D platformer in the series. Best music in this best controlling Simon in the series. I would argue that that's probably one of the best 2D platforms in the series outside of Symphony of the Night. They always wanted to do that thing where you could whip in all directions. That was always something they wanted to do, but they could never make it work on the old hardware. But the 16-bit hardware, twice as much memory addressing space, they were able to make it happen. And the huge, massive leap forward in terms of graphics in that is incredible. I couldn't believe when I first played that, like how... I, you know, it's funny. It's kind of funny to say realistic now, but like the the color, I think for me was the big thing. The coloring in that game was so fantastic that it really felt like things looked much more real and deep and dense. And uh, that you were—I don't know. I don't want to say real because it's you know it's it's pixelated sixteen bit graphics, but it was the realest looking thing I had seen in a video well, game. Well, I mean, it, it drew you in. It made you feel like you were at the castle. Yeah, the world was absolutely immersive. And the, the design of the levels is so incredible in all these games, really. But in 4, it's, it's hard to really, I guess, break it down in like just in terms just using your words because there's so much abstract about it, I guess. But the level design is just tremendous. You know, they have the vertical levels. They have the levels where uh, you have to do all these great jumping trips, tricks like jumping on the pendulum and the clock tower Lots of jumping puzzles where you have to make sure you're jumping the right way at the right time. The way things are laid out, where enemies are placed, where platforms are placed, where stairs and traps are placed. It's all done so incredibly well in all of these games. And I think 4 brought it to the next level in so many ways. There were so many more interactive things going on. There were scrolling levels to the level where the water rises, um, which is probably the most frustrating level in the whole entire game. Uh... Yeah, it's just it's just tremendous. It's it's I'm I'm having a little I'm having a little trouble with my words right now explaining just how how great the layouts and designs of the levels are. And um, you know what really blew me away when I first saw I think in Nintendo Power photos of this game. You know, in the cathedral where there's like the one corridor you walk down, and the background is like a 3D scrolling, like it, it almost looks like the inside oh, yeah. of a tumbler. Yep, 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 yep. That blew me away, and that's something that the Super Nintendo did that was unique. Nothing else, nothing else at the time was able right. to do that. That Mode was Mode Seven. seven. That yeah. was that was 
that that blew me away. That blew me away. That was incredible. The Dracula fight at the end is probably the best Dracula fight in any Castlevania game. Brandishing the whip, swinging from the uh, the hooks on the wall. Yep. Yep. Oh, absolutely. It's out of this world. Uh, another. Another thing with censorship too is there's a lot of censorship in in well I think in most of the Castlevania games, but in four, there was some censorship that was particularly uh, interesting because it kind of ties back what we were talking about before. There are statues. This is not the only censorship in the game. Like there's blood and stuff that was taken out, but there are statues that um, in the Japanese version are like topless statues, topless women statues, and then in the U.S. version they have clothes yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Like, it's a statue, guys. Come on. It's a statue. Relax. <laughs> it's a statue. It's artwork. Oh, you know what's my favorite level in, in Castlevania 4, though, is the uh, the treasury, where you're just fighting fighting monsters in oh, a big, yes, giant the pile of gold. Oh, yes, the golden bat as the, uh, as the boss. Yes. The library is also my favorite, but <laughs> the library is great. Is that the part... Or I'm trying. That might be the next one we're going to talk about. But um, don't you have to jump on some books to get a, to use as platforms? Yes. Yes. Oh, you know what though? We're you know what? There's something I wanted to mention that we're totally totally passing by because it never got released here in like any form. But there was another Castlevania game that a lot of people probably haven't played from the 8-bit era. And it's called Vampire Killer. And it's such a weird game. It was for the MSX computer, which was like, you know, a pretty popular home computer in Japan. And I played it before on an emulator. It's like, it's it's the, it's the it's the first game, but it's done really differently. Like, instead of being these levels that go one after the other, it's done more like an adventure game. So it's almost more similar to, like, Simon's Quest, but it's just a castle and it's like it's very much a computer game, so it's very different from what we're used to on the consoles. Um, there's these levels that they're pretty small levels, but you have to find the key to get to the next level. So you have to walk all over the level trying to find the key, and then like there are multiple keys and multiple okay. doors in some levels that that'll determine where you go next. It's cool. It's a cool experience. You should you should play it if you can. Uh, it's hard though. It's a really hard game. I I never got. Right. I think I got to like the third level and I just couldn't get any farther. That one was a very cool little sort of footnote in Castlevania. And um, also, well, also there's what we know as Castlevania Chronicles in the 16-bit era. And that actually came out um, on the Sharp X8, X86, X, <laughs> Sharp X68K, <laughs> which was another Japanese home computer. And that was an awesome, awesome Castlevania game that I recommend everyone play if you haven't. Very hard, very good game. Castlevania on on the you, X68. I forgot to mention to throw this in here, but uh, did you play the one for the Castlevania for Genesis that had uh, Eric Lacard and uh, Morris? Yeah, Bloodline. Well, we called it Bloodlines here. It was called yeah, the Bloodlines. new the new generation in Europe, I think. Um, and I forgot what it was called in Japan. But yeah, that one actually is... It's a good game, and it definitely feels different. Like, you can tell you're not playing it on a Super Nintendo or a Nintendo. It's just it has a different feel, and it looks like a Genesis game. But it's one of the better-looking Genesis games, in my opinion. I think it looks 
fantastic, but it does look like a Genesis game. And you can tell if you look side by side and you compare Genesis games and Super Nintendo games, like there are differences to the graphical graphics that that are, are kind of like a dead giveaway. Like the Super Nintendo obviously has a lot more color, but the Genesis has a higher resolution. So you can kind of tell if you look them side by side, you can tell whether it's a Genesis game or a Super Nintendo game. And that one looks and feels very much like a Genesis game. And of course, some, some of the assets are different too. So they're, they're like unique assets were, that were created for the Genesis. Right. Right. What's unique about that one is you have Eric Lacard who has a spear instead of the uh, the vampire killer whip. And you have a few, sure. they each have like a special power that allows them to traverse the castle in different ways. Eric Lacard has the charged jump. And then um, John Morris has the whip that he can swing from things. But he can't do the whole Simon thing. He can only swing. Yeah. You know, and that brings us forward to Demon Castle Dracula X Rondo of Blood for the PC engine. And let me tell you, that version of Rondo of Blood or Castlevania was the better version. Dracula X was just a miserable experience for me. Yes. Rondo of Blood had CD quality audio. I, I, mean, I know we talked a little bit briefly about the music in Castlevania. It still rocks. Castlevania has the best music, I think, of any game franchise ever. You walk away from Castlevania, and that's in your head, man. It is. That one, like Wicked Child. Bloody Tears. Yeah, Bloody Tears. That's the one. Bloody Kisses is a type of negative. Yeah, Bloody Tears. Man, that stuff gets in your head. Do, 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 the beginning. Do, 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 do. Oh, forget it. The beginning uh, it from is, Castlevania 3. It is, it is among, if not the best music of any video game franchise ever, it is among the best music of any video game franchise ever. Here they have CD quality audio. There are video cutscenes, And they, I mean, they're not great, right? Because this is this was a CD-ROM game from, you know, the, the very early 16-bit era. Um, so they're not great cutscenes, but they were unlike anything we had on our cartridge systems in the West. Uh, not much animation, you know, very crude anime style drawings, but still incredible by the standards we had at the time. The first stage you have, it's rainy, it's windy. You can see what the weather is like. It, you can feel while you're playing what the weather is doing to your ability to control your character. It, it's incredibly colorful. It moves fast. It plays beautifully. It's just an incredible game. Uh, you've got the hidden character of Maria that you can play as, who is incredibly overpowered, who is so much yes, stronger than Richter. Because, <laughs> because, because her birds you know, are so the, fast. Because the power of birds. You have to rescue all the girls. There are multiple endings. It's really the first time a Castlevania game had um, this much to offer in terms of replay value being able to find new things each time you played. There were they were alternate paths where there's a hidden exit in every single level. So there's an yes. A path and a B path, and on every single level you had to find the secret exit or else you go back to the A path. Right. And every single level is great. <laughs> every level is designed beautifully. You can save your game... No passwords. No more passwords. You can actually save your game here. And you could save the game on the on the Famicom Disk System ones too, obviously, because they were discs. But this was the first time you could actually save your progress, you know, in the 16-bit world and um, 
you know, not on a system that had floppy disks, I guess. <laughs> had a CD, but you get the idea. Yeah. Yep. Probably, uh, for a lot of people, the best Castlevania game. And I was surprised with Dracula X when I made my video about it on Risky Bitness because a lot of comments were basically like, no, I love this one. This one's great. Uh, you know, Dracula X is, is a great game. I love Dracula X. Uh, man, I, even before I played Rondo of Blood, I didn't like it. I played it I played it for the first time, and I was like, oh, this is a bad Castlevania game. <laughs> Why is this so bad? And, you know, I hated I, – I got to the end. Um, I played the game. I got to the end. got to the, 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 the Dracula fight. And I can't tell you how many times I got so pissed off because I got screwed because Dracula would appear right in front of me and knock me into the pit, and I would die. And I would die. And I the Dracula fight's ridiculous. Die. It's a ridiculous fight. It's a ridiculous Dracula fight. You're on platforms, and and the knockback damage will kill you. It's a ridiculous Dracula fight. It's impossible. And I, I don't believe you. If any, anyone tells me they can beat that, I don't believe them. I don't care if I see a video of you. I don't believe you. It, it was it was a doctored video. There's no way. I, it's impossible. You can't. I no one can beat that. Eventually, beat it with save states. I had to break down. It's, and it's the only save way. States. It's the only way. There's no other way. Can't do it without save states. Impossible. And I Completely was like, impossible. I finally saw the end of this game, and I'm like, oh, never again. I am playing Rondo of Blood instead. <laughs> Rondo of Blood is way better. Dracula X toward the end does a little bit of like the branching path stuff, and you actually can find Maria in it, but you can't play as her. So right. it's lame. Yeah. No, no doves. Forget about it. You know, heaven forbid you'd be overpowered with the power of animals. They did a, a remake of that in, in 2011 on the PSP with, like, updated yeah. graphics, but you yeah. could unlock the original version. And a lot of people didn't like the version with the updated graphics, but I did. I thought it was I thought it was good. I liked it. It was decent. I, play, I, I played the heck out of it. That was a lot of fun on the PSP. I have it uh, and, um, on my emulator. They had a lot of unlockables on that. It sure did, and you could get Symphony of the Night, which we'll get to yes. briefly. Yes. Uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, the Nintendo 64, because this is where gamers had a choice. Gamers had a choice between the Nintendo 64 and this new fangled console from Sony that nobody had ever heard of before called the PlayStation. And I went with the PlayStation. Dan, however, went with a 64. No, I didn't. I never had that piece of garbage. My, my condolences. But, but you played you played uh, Castlevania 64 and some of the uh, Nintendo 64 Castlevania games before, haven't you? Oh, yeah. I played, the, I played Castlevania 64. And I was told Legacy of Darkness improved on Castlevania 64, but you can't polish a turd, man. I don't... And, and like, people like... I made a video for Risky... People like this game. Castle... Okay, so, why? Why? Is it the same thing like how some people like to pay a lady to step on their nuts? Because that's 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 what playing that game feels like. Right. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's the worst Castlevania game ever. The controls are really, really bad. 
the platforming is like just abysmal because it's this this early 3D platforming when no one knew how to do that yet. There's there's no music. How do you have a Castlevania game with no music? Yeah, the music I, is like one of the best things about Castlevania, and this whole game has like no music. I, I wondered about that because it was so odd to me when I watched the um, the review about it, uh, Castlevania the. One with, uh, I think it was Castlevania 64, but I think there was two of them on Nintendo 64. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The other one was like Legacy of Darkness or something yeah, like that. Yeah. I, I remember watching the reviews on that and it was like, there's no music. And like, what? Why? That made no and then sense. The controls, the controls are terrible. The map layouts make no sense at all. Um, like I, I, it took me hours to get through the first level because there's no, there's nothing logical about where you're supposed to go, and then when you kind of figure out what you're supposed to do, it's so tedious and it takes forever. There's constantly skeletons popping up, like it's impossible to properly aim your sub weapon. It's, it is an absolute mess of a game, and I can't imagine how any person actually enjoys this game. It is so bad. You know, the only way. And, and this is just, you know, coming from headcanon myself, because there's, like, notoriously bad games that I have a dear place in my heart for, is because of nostalgia. That's got to be it, man. It's it, the only people, the only people, I think, who like Castlevania 64 are people who had an N64 when they were kids and either rented it for a weekend or got it as a gift or whatever. And because at the time we had a limit of how many games you could have at a time and play at a time, right? It's not like today where you can buy games on sale from the digital storefront and buy like six of them, you know, on, on the weekend. Um, when we're adults, that probably helps with it. But it's not like then. Like the, the games weren't available then as they are now, you know, where you can, where you can if you're so inclined, download the entire library of the N64 on BitTorrent or whatever. So Why? It, why why would you want to do such a thing so um yeah so so i mean we when we were kids we played the games that we had even if they weren't that good because someone gave them to us and we had nothing else to play if it was a rainy day or it was a weekend and our parents didn't want to take us to blockbuster whatever we had we would play it and somebody got that game and it was the best thing that they had at the time to play so they enjoyed it at the time and I didn't play this game until much later on as an adult after having played, you know, the PS2 Castlevania games. So the experience I had with it was an experience of a person who's played way better versions of the same thing. The only way you could enjoy that game is if you played it back when it came out when there was nothing better in terms of a 3D Castlevania game. And that was the only 3D Castlevania game there was. Then, okay, maybe then you like it. But you only like it because you liked it back then. If you had not played it back then and you just played it today for the first time, you would have hated it as much as I did. <laughs> Absolutely. But there was a redeeming factor because on the Sony PlayStation, we got quite possibly the greatest Castlevania of all time in Symphony of the Night. Probably my favorite. It's hard to pick a favorite game when you've been playing as many games as I have for as long as I have, but that is probably... My favorite game. I, 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 I love how in Symphony of the Night there are infinite items to collect 
there's so many items, and there are items that are absolute nonsense, that there's no reason for you to ever possibly actually want to get them, except that they're in the game, and the game is so great that you may as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and and let's talk about how game-breaking the Crusagrim was. But before even that, you know... You, that's, you... that's not even the best weapon. They're it's about, not. That, like, we found out about that weapon. Like, that's the one that drops off the werewolves, right? And everyone was like, oh, you got to get the chrysogram. It's, it's it's the best. That's not even oh, the best. There's, the... Like, there's like three weapons that are better than that one that no one even found out about until like years later. It was off of the shmoo. The shmoo, in the, uh, yes. In the inverted library. Yes. And then um, my favorite item in all of uh, Symphony of the Night is the peanuts. Oh, yes. Because the description is very hard to eat. And I'm like, why is, why is that hard to eat? I eat peanuts all the time. Is Alucard allergic? But then to eat them, like you equip them and you throw them up in the air, and you have to press up the second the peanut <laughs> falls on his head so he can open his mouth to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's, it's very hard to do. It's like a challenge to be able to eat a peanut. Uh, in fact, I think it's probably a retro achievement to, to eat a peanut. It might uh, be. It yeah. might be. And there was so much cool hidden stuff in that game that, like, there was not in the manual. No one knew about it. People didn't find it out until years later. You know, there's, like, a, a part of the castle that you could only get to by glitching it. There are, like, things that are just never explained in our mysteries, like why there's a dude rowing a canoe when you look at the telescope. There's all those fun little Easter eggs, like if you sit in the chair, like the priest comes and takes your confession. Well, only if it's the right color, because if it's the wrong color, yes. it'll stab you. There are so many janky things that are broken and glitchy and were just left in the game, and I love that. I love that they used to leave these glitchy things in the games that weren't game-breaking, but then they you, you couldn't patch it, so they would just leave it in the game and hope that nobody found them, and of course, eventually, everyone found all of them. Right. So many little janky broken things, math that didn't work and made you do like more or less damage with things than you were supposed to. Um, you know, there's the luck code that that reduces your stats, but then makes all your, makes your luck really high. Um, there's the the shield rod where you use that with your shield, and your shield becomes like an enemy destroying battering ram. So many cool things in that game. Uh, the way the experience points scale to level, so there's a soft level cap of 60, and I actually was grinding my way up to level 61 at one point, which took way too long, because I just loved the game so much and wanted to keep playing. Like, single-use items, like the spike breaker armor, like, it didn't make sense that was in the game, but, like, you needed it to get to a certain point. It was just, there's so many cool things about the game that were just weird design choices, and, and of course, you know, that's just the magic of the game. And that's that's not even talking about how great the gameplay is, the platforming, how incredible the design of the castle is. The soundtrack is the best. If, if Castlevania has the best music of any video game franchise, same thing that it has the best video game music of any video game. Right. Absolutely. Did I mean, you know? You got to just think about how rocking it is when you're coming into the castle for the first time and those guitars are screeching and yes. before you even meet death <laughs> like the power metal soundtrack death, oh my gosh so good did you know that uh, if you take the disc the, the Castlevania Symphony of the Night disc 
and you put that in a regular CD player. Yep. Mm-hmm. He right? talks to you. Alucard talks to you. Yeah. Yeah, you have to go to track two because track one doesn't work. And I think that's kind oh. of funny because, like, Alucard tells you that, but you wouldn't know unless you skipped track two. He's like, track one contains computer data, so please don't play it. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's got favorite end credits songs of all time. It, it, I but am the wind, only, right? on, only on the PlayStation because on the remakes that I played it on, um, especially on the uh, Xbox, they took out I Am The Wind. And I think that's because they lost the Copyright. rights to that. Yeah, license, yeah. License. Oh, that's a shame. But And I heard the Saturn version stinks. You can play as Maria, but other than that, it stinks. Yeah, I with the PlayStation version, man, the, the I Am The Wind just really, that set the tone for just the ending of that game. In my mind, it yeah. really, really made it all gel together. And again, the two castles, the alternate ending, you know, all the subtle clues to tell you to put on the two rings in order to get to the second castle. Uh, you know, Richter mode. Richter mode was cool. I mean, it, it was hard because Richter wasn't really built to play, be played in the game, but you could you could finish the game with Richter. It was right. really hard. It took a long time. And he had all those really cool moves you could do with different button inputs. And you did like the different Street Fighter inputs to get different magic spells. There was so much going on in that game. I loved how you had a spell called Dark Metamorphosis, and like if you killed an enemy that yeah. bled, then like yep. it would heal you. Because yep. you're a vampire. Turn into a bat, turn into mist, turn into a wolf. It's all it's all so much fun. It was the coolest oh, character in a Castlevania game. I mean, look, I was I was a teenage goth when that game came out. I was in my right. glory. I was like, look at this, look at this beautiful vampire man with his long, beautiful, flowing hair. He looks like, you know, the Stott from the uh, Anne Rice books. Let's go, let's do this. Yeah, man, such a great game. Such a great game. And and, and he has, and he can use swords, which are the best weapon in right. video games, obviously. But then there's all kinds of other weapons you can also use. And they all have different properties and special moves. There's like so many little hidden things, like special moves you can do with the weapons that like I think there's probably still stuff people haven't found in that game. I think years from now people are still gonna find new stuff in that game. Oh, absolutely. Especially during you know, and, and they, they even with the randomizer, I've seen items that I've never seen before come from the randomizer. Yeah. Yeah, they started the tradition in that game of having the rare drops. And um you know, if you go to the library, you can look at the the bestiary, and it'll sh- it'll show you what the rare drops are for each character, uh, each each enemy rather. But then, like in all the GBA games, they would they play, they made that part of the menu, so you didn't have to go to the library to go look at it. You could you could keep on killing the same enemy over and over and over again until you get the rare drop, which I didn't do in Symphony of the Night, uh, because there were just too many. But I did do that in Bloodstained, because yeah. there weren't enough. Bloodstained was cool. It was kind of like Symphony of the Night Part Two, but it, it just for right. me it was there wasn't enough. Right. It, like I needed, I needed the game to be longer and have more content. But you know that was that was that's 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 Ega. You know that was Ega, the maker of Symphony of the Night, making the game he always wanted to make after Symphony of the Night without the Castlevania license. Right. So it was just you know very Castlevania adjacent. Moving on, I wanted to talk a little bit about the GBA games, the GBA and the uh, and Nintendo DS era, and I want to throw in the PlayStation 2 era in there too, 
um, because we had Lament of Innocence, we had um, Curse of Darkness, we've had uh, Circle of the Moon. Everyone sleeps on the PS2 games, man. They're so good. Oh, they are so good. Especially Lament I of Innocence. Love... Everyone sleeps on Lament of Innocence. Lament of Innocence is a great game. It is a great game. It is. I've beaten it multiple times for with all three of the playable characters. And each one is unique and fun. I remember when I first played it, I was a little bummed out. Because I was really hoping it was going to be like a big you know, RPG type experience like, um, like Symphony of the Night was, and it wasn't really, it was kind of a little bit, but it didn't have like different weapons and stuff you could collect. I guess it did to a we point, but it wasn't quite the same, but it's still, it's still a great game. Yeah. The elemental whips and you know, the, 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 the 3d platforming and action was really starting to kind of come into its own. Finally in that era, I think in like the PlayStation slash N64 era, they tried and it really wasn't happening. It wasn't working. But when they got to that era with the PS2, there were some great <laughs> games that were like 3D action platform games. Um, and they played really great. And they were, you know, uh, the Castlevania games. Maximo was another good example of that. And then and then the whole genre kind of disappeared after that. Or at least it, it, it the, the platforming element did. You know, they still have 3D action games, but they didn't really right, have platforming games right. anymore. And I loved, I loved Curse of Darkness. Uh, the crafting aspect, the picking up of rare items and the drops. And, oh, so good. Stealing items. Yeah, Hector the Devil Forge Master. Yeah, that game is definitely underrated. There's a part I remember. I played it. I don't remember how long ago this was. It was a couple of years ago, I think. I was playing it, and um, there's one section where you can farm, like, the most powerful item in the game, and I was just farming it for hours and hours and hours, and I never got it. Right. And eventually, eventually I got bored of trying. <laughs> but, yeah, that the same, the same idea. You could farm, you know, very strong items, and then you would go in and do your Devil Forging to get you know your new companion and there were uh, so many possible combinations that you could get different companions with different powers yeah man that one has some unique elements to it uh, elements to it that one has some unique elements that i don't think i've seen in a in, in, right. in another game you know since then that's a great game definitely gets under underrated and slept on and uh you know several orders of magnitude better than castlevania 64 that's for sure yes absolutely and, you know, and I mean, Circle of the Moon was something. Yeah. I really don't yeah, know how uh, to describe uh, it. I enjoyed it for what Yeah, a lot was. of people really love it. Um, I mean, it's I didn't like I didn't love it the first time I played it. Uh, I played it again recently. Like, I, I, it's it's all right. You know, it's 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 a decent game. It's not my favorite. You know, um, it was definitely a a spiritual successor to Symphony of the Night. Um, but it was missing a lot of the elements that made Symphony of the Night so great. And it was definitely kind of scaled down to be on a handheld. And it wasn't made by Iga. It was made by, like, Konami's secondary group that they had this, like, minor development house for a while called KCEK that was, like, part of Konami, but it wasn't the same people. And they made that dreadful Castlevania 64, and they made also uh, Circle of the Moon, which Circle of the Moon is not canon, and, like, people think that it was, and then, like, Iga came back and decanonized it, but that never happened. It was never canon to begin with, and and Iga has made that clear before in some interviews. It was never intended to be canon. It was always a side story. It was never part of the main Castlevania timeline, and I think it's, 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 it's considered part of an official alternate timeline at this point. Um... Uh, you know, the big misconception people had is that there's a character whose name is Morris, 
and people made the connection John Morris to this character's name is Morris, but his first name is Morris, not his surname. So right. like that that doesn't even that 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 connection doesn't even make sense. And apparently the intention was that his name was supposed to be Maurice, but when it was localized, it was localized as Morris, which I suppose if you're using, you know, um, Japanese characters and you're trying to spell Morris, you would get Morisu, which, you know, either way could be Maurice or Morris, and they went with the one that they thought it was, but it wasn't. It was supposed to be Maurice. Right. So, yes, he is not related to John Morris, and that game in the official Castlevania timeline never happened. It happened in an alternate timeline, i.e. alternate universe, and is not part of the canon at all. I mean, I still had fun with it. I did. I I, I enjoyed yeah. the card system and and the DSS. Yeah, I and... I got I got bored trying to get all the cards. There are a couple of them that are like rare drops, and it was just I got bored. Like I didn't need them. Eh, I didn't care. So I never got all. The, I never got all the cards. I have two left to get, but those are in the um, arena. And yeah, the arena. The, the arena sucks. Ridiculous ridiculously powered ridiculously high level to get through that because they drain all your magic you have no magic whatsoever so that means your health has to be extremely high and you have to farm for potions and it's like uh because there's no shop well i mean i mean there were some quality of life improvements from symphony of the night like you didn't have to equip potions anymore so that was kind of cool you could like use an item without having to equip it because that was really clumsy. That was a really clumsy thing in Symphony of the Night, having to equip an item in order to use it and then like go back and equip your weapon back again. That was kind of a headache. For sure. Hmm. But yeah, and then and then there was Harmony of Despair and Aria of Sorrow. Harmony of Dissonance. Harmony of Harmony of Dissonance. That's yeah. it. I didn't. There's yeah. there was two of them, and I always get them mixed up. Yeah. Um. I might mix them up myself. <laughs> no, Harmony of Dissonance. Yeah, Harmony of Dissonance was the one. Harmony of Despair was something else. And that's like one of the mobile games. Gotcha. See, this, and then this was the Iga era where like they started naming all the Castlevania games after uh, musical movements. Right. So, you know, rondos and symphonies and sonatas and... Symphony of the Night was called Geka no Yaso Kyoku in... in... Uh, Japan, which is like, it's also a musical reference, but it doesn't gotcha. mean the same thing. I forgot what it means. Gotcha. <laughs> and then we had Portrait of Ruin. Oh, gotcha. Nocturne in the Moonlight. That's Portrait, what it means. We had Portrait of Ruin and Order of Ecclesia on the Nintendo DS. And I think both of those mm-hmm. games were actually really solid titles. Yeah, Portrait of Ruin was a lot of fun. Portrait of Ruin is kind of a, like... Portrait of Rune feels almost like, and I think it is another side story. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if that's in the timeline. That one was like, yeah, it was fun. I like that you had the two characters and you kind of switch back and forth. It was a cool little gimmick. And I think Charlotte and Jonathan. Yes, yeah, that was that was that was fun. It was a fun game. Um, I played it. I finished it. I liked it. Uh, you know, it, it, not as good as Symphony of the Night, but like pretty close. Order of Ecclesia is really good. I think Order of Ecclesia is probably the best. I mean, it was the last one they did, but I think that's probably the best one. Order of Ecclesia was really good. Uh, a lot of people didn't really like that one as much because it was it was hard and it was like different and weird. You had to get all the different powers, but yeah, I don't know. I liked it. I, I had a lot of fun with that one. I played the heck out of that one. I did a lot of grinding and getting all the different weapons and items and stuff. Right, right. And then, but that one was more like si- more like Simon's Quest. Like you had towns you had to go to in between the castles. Yeah, it was good. Yep. And then we had quite arguably 
the most head scratching. Most my dude. Most my dude. You like completely skipped over the whole like Dawn of series. What do you even call that? Because uh, there was the GBA stuff and the DS stuff, and there was a bridge between the GBA and the DS. Um, because there was. Uh, I'm drawing the blank on the title of these games now. There was Circle of the Moon. There was uh, Aria of Sorrow, right? That's the one with Eust. Yep. And then there was Dawn of Sorrow. So there was Lament of Sorrow, and this, this is getting getting confusing. Dawn of Sorrow for the DS, uh, which was the sequel to Aria of Sorrow. And that was the one that you had to do. That was the one where you had to take the stylus and draw the picture. Okay. I hated that. That was the worst. It's annoying. Yeah. I killed the boss. I killed the boss. Why do I have to draw a picture now? Right. You gonna hang it on the fridge? Yeah. So we kind of skipped that one. But yeah, and then and then and then all the other things you were talking about, but they were all good. I enjoyed them all. They were all very very good games. And oh, now we're getting into now we're getting into this this nonsense. Yeah, this nonsense. That's what I was going to say too. Normally I'd like to argue with you, but you know what? This is one of those situations where I can't really come up with a good argument uh that this game is any good story-wise. So apparently they rebooted the Castlevania franchise because the games weren't selling well enough, which doesn't make sense to me because the last console entry before this was like six years prior. So like, what were they basing this on? Uh, that made no sense. And then they had Mercury Stream develop the game. Directed by... Kojima and 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 it was not it was not a Castlevania game at the beginning I don't think I think it was like something else they were working on and then they just kind of like turned it into a Castlevania right. game I mean it takes all the lore from everything we had ever known and just chucks it out the window and says it makes like a way less, a way worse story where like Gabriel Belmont is the guy and there's no more Simon Belmont. He no longer exists. And then like Gabriel becomes Dracula and it's so hokey. Oh, it's, it's something. So, so I'm trying to like remember the, the details. I'm, I'm looking it up on my screen right now to see if I can get any more like why, why did they make this, 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 like it's, it's God of War, the Castlevania skin on it. And then, and then it's also Shadow of the Colossus a little bit because the enemies you have to climb on them and stuff. Yep, yep. And um, apparently, I'm looking up on apparently the, the Wikipedia page, and it says that Konami was Konami actually told Mercury Stream to stop because they were they were making the game and they were like, no, stop. <laughs> okay. Um, and there was like. There was, there was like a disagreement between Konami and Mercury Stream, I think, as to whether this was even going to be a Castlevania right. game. And then, um, and then apparently David Cox from Mercury Stream showed 
uh, showed the Japanese senior management the game, and Kojima offered to help on the title. And then they decided to go ahead and pitch this game that Mercury Stream was working on for Konami as a Castlevania game. So it didn't start out as a Castlevania game. It was something Mercury Stream was working on for Konami that was supposed to be a new IP. And then they're like, stop, stop making this game. We don't want it anymore. And Mercury Stream is like, but look at my game. It's pretty cool. And then they were like, okay, Kojima, help him make this game. And then they're like, hey, let's make it a Castlevania. And then they were like, let's make it a remake of the first Castlevania game with Simon Belmont, but it'll be a new, a new updated version. And then they're like, let's take that idea and wipe our ass with it yeah. and sell that instead. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, and then and then and then it it really seems a lot to me like they were like, "Hey, God of War is popular. Let's do that." And also Shadow of Colossus is popular, so we'll also do that. And um I guess put a werewolf in it so people will still think they're playing Castlevania when they're in the swamp fighting goblins, you know, like you do right. in Castlevania. And then like and then like Pan's Labyrinth shows up at one point. And there's like a lake and there's like a druid or whatever he is and he's I don't I don't know. It's It's a mess. I don't know. And this and the story is awful. It's it's just it's awful. I mean, I don't know. Some people like the game, but it was it was no. not good. It was not no, good. That's what I'm trying to say. And then there was then there was a sequel that was also not good. And then I tried playing Lords of Shadow 2. I have it on Steam and the controls are like ridiculous and confusing and don't make sense. And uh, so so I don't know, man. I think I think the Castlevania franchise sort of died with the Order of Ecclesia. I think that was the yeah, last good Castlevania game. I think game. you're right. But hey, hey, you know what? Konami still exists. They still own the IP. They could still make new stuff with it. Uh, I mean, like they they made they made a few things using the IP. There was like an erotic pachinko machine <laughs> in Japan that that if you ever if anyone who hasn't seen the trailer for that it's 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 really something. <laughs> It's something. Uh, it makes you say, oh, Japan. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but it's something. <laughs> um, there's a lot of sure. a lot of boobs and butts. It's just you know, just just like just like you remember Castlevania, you go to Dracula's castle and a succubus like flies around and she's got triple F cups for reasons and uh <laughs> just everything is ridiculous. Well, you know. Everything is ridiculous. Oh Japan. Yeah. Japan casinos in Japan, obviously, because people are guys gambling and smoking and drinking, and they want to see some boobies. So, give them some vampire boobies, and yeah. um, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But hey, hey, all, all, all hope may not be lost. There was like a PS Vita game, I think. I don't know. Hey, but but all hope may not be lost. They might yet come around and do something with Castlevania in the future, or you know have a third party develop something or sell the IP. I don't know. The IP is probably still more valuable to them than whatever they can get, you know, to sell, uh, to, to sell it. I don't know. Point is, point is if you haven't played Lords of Shadow, like don't waste your money. It's not, it's not worth it. Yeah, for sure. So Dan, I, I, uh, it's been a little while. You got anything new going on? Yeah, man. Uh, in, in, in what context? I got things. I got things going on. 
Oh man. You got a you working risky fitness, getting some new stuff put out. Yeah, yeah, I just put out a video on Night Slashers, which is an arcade beat 'em up where instead of fighting uh, street thugs, you're fighting zombies. So a little apropos to our Halloween theme and to our episode today. So that's a fun one. Uh, you know, just a quick talk about uh, how that game came to be, and uh, it's a it's a it's a game that you can play on the Switch now if you if you want to play it. Fun beat 'em up, you know, quick play. Uh, maybe sit on the couch with a friend and and bang that one out. And uh, next, I'm going to be working on the Power Instinct franchise, which are you familiar at all with uh, Power Instinct, Jared? It sounds familiar, but I don't think I've really gotten too much into it. All right. So Power Instinct is kind of like Atlas's answer to Street Fighter. You know, in the 90s, everybody was trying to make a Street Fighter clone, and they all Street wanted Fighter, to make yep. Yeah, they all were imitating Street Fighter. And it started out as kind of, it's basically one of the better Street Fighter clones, because there are a lot of them out there, and a lot of them are awful. This was one of the better Street Fighter clones, but it had a few unique elements. And um, they had sequels, and in the sequels, they expanded on those unique elements and added new stuff. And it became very much, after a while, its own thing. And there's uh, Matra Melee and uh, Gogetsuki Legends, which are Gogetsuji, Gogetsuji Legends, which are really good, solid fighting games. So I'm going to kind of talk all about that franchise. Uh, this is going to be a multi-part series where I'm going to talk about the franchise, how it started, where it wound up, and um, you know why and how these games became as distinctive as they were. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be a good little journey down that particular rabbit hole. Uh, Matra Melee, I think, or Gogetsuji Legends may have been the last one. I'm, I'm not sure I still have to figure that piece out. But anyway, right, they're all right. they're 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 very good games, and I have a few fighting games and a few beat 'em ups that I want to cover. Uh, I'm also currently capturing footage for a video I'll be doing on the game that I'm currently obsessed with, which is The Last Remnant. That was a yes, I JRPG. Saw that. that one was released back in like 2009. Um, I have it on Steam. It's no longer available on Steam because Square Enix stopped selling it because they released a remaster. But the remaster never came out on PC. So I still have the PC version of my library. I've been playing it. And um, I'm obsessed with it. It is the deepest, most um, complex RPG I have ever played. It is brilliant in its execution. It is genius in its design. Uh, it is incredibly frustrating to anyone who is not paying attention, and um, okay. it does not hold your hand at okay. all. Sort of like Saga? Very, very much like Saga, developed by the same team. Gotcha. So, uh, okay. uh, uh, often, often recognized as an unofficial Saga game. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so I want to thank you guys for listening to our episode tonight. Um, I am Jared. Be sure to follow us on our socials at The Console Kingdom. Follow us on YouTube at The Console Kingdom Podcast. Follow Dan at RiskyBitness81. Mm -hmm. That's right. And as always, we thank you for joining us. Stay cool. And Dan, got anything else? <laughs> Yeah, man. Just uh, thanks for listening. Game on.